Hello, and welcome to this podcast presented by the Southern Alberta Council on Public Affairs. Hello, everyone. It's uh, getting around 1 o'clock, so we're going to have the question and answer period. Um, again, our microphone is set up there. We won't accept questions from the floor. Got to go up to the microphone so everybody can hear. And if you could state your name and limit yourself to one or two topical questions uh, pertaining to the speaker and to the topic. And um, so we'll start that right away. If I could welcome Dr. Hall back up here again. Thanks. Thanks, Tony. Tony, my question relates to uh, the question that we are asking here. What uh, what sort of uh, benefits could uh, come our way if we reestablished uh, diplomatic relationships with uh, Iran, uh, and vice versa? What what harm? Do you think uh, related to some of it? What are specific harms that we that chances are that we will uh, receive if we're not if we don't have relationship with uh, diplomatic relationship with Iran? Uh, well, as I uh, mentioned in the presentation, uh, Iran is a, a big, powerful, rich polity, and uh, especially when you think about oil patch. Uh, of course, it has a major uh, operation, uh, many operations in their own uh, very wealthy um, oil and gas resources, which they have been exploiting, um, you know, throughout the 20th century. So uh, surely there are business opportunities for our oil patch and their oil patch to share. Uh, uh, and do exchanges and um, develop technologies together and uh, and that kind of thing. I have to say when I was there, I wasn't fully aware of the fact that, uh, you know, there was no Canadian embassy. And uh, so there I am in, the, uh, in a country and say I did have a difficulty, uh, I'm completely left to my own. Uh, and uh, I must say, when I sat at the table and thought about this in, in retrospect, when I sat at the delegates' table, it said Anthony Hall, it didn't say Alberta or University of Lethbridge, it said Anthony Hall, Canada. And it was kind of striking to think, well, I guess since we don't have an ambassador, somebody, you know, the idea that it's a good thing in, in all societies that you talk, and especially if you're having difficulties with a society, there's, there's some exchange uh, taking, taking place, exchange of ideas. So, you know, to have diplomatic relations with a country doesn't mean you agree with every aspect of what they do, that you support what they do. And our biggest friend in the region, one of our biggest friends is Saudi Arabia, which does not have elections, you know, which uh, is, 
is really a repressive regime and do behead people and uh, really do fulfill some of the caricatures and stereotypes. Uh, I saw, you know, the country of Iran. It's a, a country of people mostly trying to take care of themselves, do the best they can for them fa their families or something. And it, I, I found it dumbfounding when I not only realized we don't have relations, but that we expelled officials from Canada, declared them persona non grata, and, uh, uh, and, and declared them to be the worst threat in the world to peace and security. That's a specious claim. Uh, Tony, are we on? Uh, Tony, uh, Terry Shellington, thank you for your presentation. Uh, you remarked uh, more or less in passing that uh, <clears throat> Iran was entitled to nuclear power, uh, as, uh, entitled to make that choice for nuclear energy. Uh, of course, one of the issues driving Middle East politics right now is particularly the Israeli conviction that they're working on uh, nuclear weapons. And uh, <clears throat> do you have any comment on that? Uh, um, you know, generally the um, Mossad is uh, is pretty good uh, uh, spy agency. So, uh, is that a is that a false fear that they might be having nuclear weapons? Well, I um, did uh, hear the presentation of uh, Gareth Porter, and uh, Gareth Porter uh, has written a you know well documented book. Uh, describing the manufactured crisis, the untold story of the Iran nuclear scare. And uh, so I am able to read here that uh, there's a great deal of evidence that the government of Israel has concocted uh, evidence, has uh, fed disinformation into the system, has corrupted the workings of the International Atomic Energy uh, Agency. And, uh, you know, how can I say for sure what is happening at the deepest uh, levels of uh, uh, a technological operation of any kind? Uh, you know, it's not going to necessarily be advertised. But, you know, let's be real here. The uh, government of Israel has a huge uh, nuclear arsenal, and uh, it has a it has a huge nuclear arsenal about which it lies to us. It doesn't even acknowledge to this day. We all know it at Demona. They have this, you know, m many uh, n nuclear resources, nu weapons of mass destruction, uh, and one of the reasons of their one of the outcomes of their not acknowledging it is they don't take part in any treaties. There's no regulation. Like, Iran is part of the non-proliferation treaty. Uh, it was uh, the United States of America that brought nuclear power to Iran during the government of the Shah in the name of what's called the Atoms for Peace. Eisenhower gave a great, uh, you know, a speech in the United Nations about this. So it was the U.S. State Department that promoted Iran to get nuclear energy. There was a discussion within Iran, should we keep it or not, after the uh, events of 1979. And there was a brief time where they said, let's, let's just not go there. And uh, then they decided, let's go there. And then Reagan stepped in and stepped into the... Uh, uh, arrangement with a German company who, that was providing nuclear fuel rods. And so without that supply of nuclear fuel rods, then they had to develop their own 
domestic way of making nuclear fuel rods, which involves enriching uranium and centrifuges and all of that technology. So that is the, you know, that allows people to say, oh, look, you're enriching uranium. You, you can use that in nuclear weapons, but you, ha you need that to manufacture nuclear fuel rods. So I, I, I think it's very persuasive that they don't want to do that. There, there have been fatwas, clerical fatwas, against any weapons of mass destruction by Ayatollah Khomeini and Ayatollah Khamenei, the current supreme leader in, in Iran. Uh, these are religious people who have a deep conviction that this type of uh, activity on the part of any people aimed at creating a power base by scaring and intimidating people, and that's the reason you have nuclear weapons, and you've got to have people think you might use them. This is a terrible crime against all human beings. My name is Mark Gettle. Now that Iran has boots on the ground in Iraq, and we are fighting ISIS, and we are supplying air power, or air cover for them, actually, uh, do you think this will change the West's attitude towards Iran? Well, I, I doubt that this is well understood that uh, the uh, uh, Iranian government has a, a force uh, operative in uh, Iraq, Syria, uh, fighting ISIL, opposing ISIL, and have one of their famous generals uh, leading that. So, uh, and, and are apparently quite effective uh, at opposing ISIL. Uh, so uh, where is the explanation of where the Canadian, how the gov Canadian government sees this? Uh, after all, if uh, we're fighting the same enemy, and of course Iran has very different reasons. It has its own reasons for opposing ISIL that are, I think, quite, you know, rep rep represent a different uh, orientation and a different uh, uh, analysis. Uh, but that's a good point you raise, and uh, let's uh, think about that. That, well, if ISIL is, is indeed the enemy and Iran is fighting ISIL, uh, why are we demonizing that type of potential ally? Thank you for your presentation. My name is Cosmos Boutinus. I'm a nuclear, ex nuclear engineer. Uh, I would like to correct you a little bit that abuse, the bomb is a abuse of a power, not the use of a power. And there is a difference between commercial and military, but that's another story. My question for you is, in, Ira in Iran, they have enriched uranium only to 5 to 10% enrichment. To make bombs, you need over 90%. And that takes years to do. All it will take for someone is to just visit once a year, know all the sites, and inspect that they don't enrich higher. And with a Gegner counter outside, you can figure it out easily. What is the problem with the negotiations? Have you got any handling it? What is wrong with the negotiations is that uh, uh, the government of Israel and, the, uh, and Benjamin Netanyahu in particular, their whole thing is global terror. Benjamin Netanyahu votes on this is Conference organized in 1980. Uh, terror, how the West can win. There is a, a neocon uh, agenda, um, and by neoconservative, that's a, a phrase. You know, it would require some discussion about what neoconservatism is. 
but certainly uh, Dick Cheney, George W. Bush, uh, Stephen Harper, uh, David Frum, Ezra Levant, these are neoconservatives. And so the demonization of the Islamic enemy uh, is uh, very uh, significant here in the Canadian context. I mean, there, there was a famous paper by Tom Flanagan and Stephen Harper in 1996 saying we've got to do away with the middle ground. We've got to eliminate the progressive conservative party, essentially, the, the team B, the B team to the liberals. We've got to embrace the heritage of the reform party, Preston Manning. We've got beneath that heritage is uh, social credit, and the Social Credit Party of Alberta was quite anti-Semitic. And social credit was, as evangelical Christianity has been at different times, quite anti-Semitic. Uh, so, so the problem was to change that. There was a conference in Calgary in 1996 hosted by David Frum and Ezra Levant. And just the fact that they're hosting that conference, two prominent urbanized Canadian Jews, you know, was sending out a signal, that's good. But then comes the next stage where uh, the anti-Semitism of evangelical Protestantism is somehow transformed into Christian Zionism and somehow transformed into a political base for uh, Stephen Harper, for Benjamin Netanyahu, and for the probable next president of the United States, given the funding type of situation we're seeing with Sheldon Adelson and his casino dollars with unlimited funding for the, the Republican side. So the demonization of the Islamic enemy, and of course the Islamic Republic of Iran, you know, it was, took some getting used to being at a conference that is started by clerics, where, you know, the, it's religious people that have a, a big uh, role in, in making decisions. Uh, but, you know, it, it's been going since 1979, and I, I'm, I see in that society a lot of uh, decency, some types of decency that I don't see in my own society, some openness to real intellectual discourse that is very difficult I mean, Newt said you've already got interventions. Even discussing this subject is seen as somehow blasphemous in some circles. So there's a lot of reasons why uh, it's, you know, there's a, a polarization on this nuclear energy issue, and it seems that the Democratic Party are taking one side, the Republican Party are taking another side, the no, now Ruth speech of Obama and Stephen Harper. Obama stands in Vancouver and basically says, we're with you, those who were with the Shah regime and don't like the current regime. We're going to help you overthrow the government in Iran. Meanwhile, uh, Barack Obama, in the same, at the same time, is giving a speech more or less saying, let's work together, let's use this moment, this opportunity to come up with a, an agreement and the agreement, yes, it's going to be on technical details, but such an agreement would send a signal and it would legitimize the idea, let's do things through talk, through negotiation, not, you know, weaponry and sword, sword rattling and not only sword rattling, you know, using uh, weapons of mass destruction and creating the environment where this becomes more and more pervasive. So, uh, so, so we are seeing uh, Iran as a symbol in a very important debate that, uh, uh, you know, we have a Canadian prime minister who is running for office now for a second term on the concept that he's a wartime prime minister. 
And to what extent is that actually the case? And to what extent is that a manifestation of something, you know, manipulated, something part of a political agenda, a powerful political agenda? I just ask the question. Professor Ball, it's been a pleasure. It's been a pleasure to know you as a friend. You and I tried to break in on the on the Kenny Lethbridge visitation. We didn't succeed. Canada needs you. People like you with your encyclopedic brain to explain everything that is actually happening. Most people wouldn't dare. Re- Resolve or reveal what's happening around the world, but you did mention you did mention touched on nine eleven. I read the book. That is the most false uh, era in in our in our life today. Nine eleven. You you touched on it, and you know the history. Could you elaborate a little bit what it was really, and who did it, and who started it? Thank you. Well, let me say that when we left the conference in Tehran, the Anti-Defamation League uh, put out a press release. Actually, it was Abe Foxman in his own voice, the sort of notorious or famous uh, mouthpiece of the Anti-Defamation League. And the essence of it was that the people at the conference were four key terms, anti-Semitic, Holocaust deniers, conspiracy theorists, and 9-11 truthers. And these four terms, it caused me to see that these four terms are used in a way that no justification, no explanation is necessary. You simply use these terms, and what you're saying is this person or this country or this association need not be listened to. They're radicals. They're cuckoo. They're beyond... Uh, serious consideration. And I was interested to see that 9-11 truther is uh, now among Holocaust denier, anti-Semitism. And uh, uh, so uh, what is a 9-11 truther? I mean, if you want the truth, should we better want lies? Yes, people would like truth. I would like truth. I know for sure that the official explanation of 19 Saudis with box cutters somehow uh, going through the whole system and bringing down three steel frame skyscrapers with two planes uh, and buildings that don't just collapse in a big pile but burst and are pulverized into talcum powder. They're actually vaporized in an instant, falling symmetrically like some kind of controlled demolition. Uh, This is not the result of burning jet fuel. And the story that we were told within hours uh, of what happened on 9-11, that it was Osama bin Laden, that it was al-Qaeda, that it was Islamic fundamentalists, 19 Saudis with box cutters, this doesn't stand up. And, you know, my colleague, David Ray Griffin, uh, has written 10 books on different aspects of this subject. This is a very senior, uh, serious academic, and there's a huge uh, analysis. Uh, so I, 
9-11 is kind of a trap. It enables people to say, oh, you don't really have to listen to this because that person is one of those, you know, who think Elvis is alive and Martians uh, regularly come to Earth. And this is constructed. Like uh, Jonathan Kay at the National Post wrote a book called Among the Truthers and then lists out all these kind of crazy people. He's kind of like an anthropology. It actually says in the title, he goes into the underground dens of the uh, conspiracists. Uh, uh, so, uh, you know, this is, to me, a shameful moment when I see my university, when I see the academy generally, when I see journalism so perverted and so corrupted that some kind of reckoning with the actual historical record and the actual evidence is just dismissed and that we are forced and made to live, those who watch television a lot, mm. in a kind of world of constructed legends and fantasies. Mm. And Leo Strauss, a famous professor, laid this all, all, all out. You can't trust the common people with the truth. You've got to kind of provide them with uh, legends and, and mythologies that makes them feel okay. So uh, that's my that's my response to how I deal with the 9-11 truther question. Thank you, Frank. Okay, my question kind of deals, and my name is Greg McCauley. question deals with two areas. One, we have a country, and in my mind, there's no doubt that I think Iran is going to develop the bomb. We've got a bomb being developed, I'm not sure, that by the leader is sworn to, to wipe out the state of Israel, to dispose of all Jews on the face of the earth. So that's the first part of the question. Well, those are two different concepts. Well, no, he's, not, uh, he's actually Israel said he's going to destroy and, uh, Israel. All Jews right? on the face of the earth. Those well, are two very Israel, different well, let's concepts. Stay, let's say with Israel then. The second issue okay. is around human rights. The Argentina, Hamas, Hezbollah, all supported by, by Iran. And I'll finish up with one kind of a snide comment. Do you actually believe they landed on the moon as well? I'll, I'll take the next question. My name is Graham Greenlee. Uh, my question is a little bit easier, I think. <laughs> Tony, uh, do you know if there's any uh, renewable energy industry in Iran other than nuclear? Renewable energy industry? I, you know, I was there for a week. I was in Tehran. I had a discussion about Fukushima. I believe Fukushima is a terrible thing. I, I really think that the nuclear energy in, industry is a, you know, we should be done with that. All the world should be done with that. I really do believe that the nuclear weapons industry and the nuclear energy industry are connected. Companies like General Electric were involved in developing, you know, the the bombs that were dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, the prototypes of nuclear weapons. And General Electric built the uh, prototypes for the uh, uh, nuclear power reactors that blew up at Fukushima. And uh, they were actually taking uh, a design from nuclear submarines, which was the first use after nuclear weapons. So, you know, the nuclear energy industry from its inception was part of a sort of public relations campaign. Adams for Peace was part of it to give this idea that there can be, you know, positive 
clean uh, public health uses for uh, a, a nuclear energy and to make it these companies involved in making nuclear weapons, which are many and prominent, to make them seem a little friendlier and to make the U.S. government seem a little friendlier and, you know, and all of these bombs were being exploded in a kind of arms race between the Soviet Union and people were panicking. So giving this, uh, so nuclear energy is a, uh, to me, a, a really problematic thing. And, I, you know, I, so I did have discussions saying, listen, uh, you know, of, of all the things you could be doing, Iran, it's a sophisticated, you know, very famous scientists, mathematicians, technologies. You know, why, why, why go into that? But I guess the fact when you're told, no, you can't do that because you're a kind of murderous kind of people, and yeah, other countries can do this, but we can't trust you because you're, you're, you're called the Islamic Republic of Iran, after all. I mean, how could, you know, how could we trust you to have peaceful nuclear energy? So you could see how that might cause people to say, well, we're darn well going to have it, and we're going, darn well going to develop our, our technology in that area. Uh, so, you know, the, if, if I had a, an opportunity to talk to people in Iran more than I have, that's, and maybe, maybe I am talking to people in Iran right now, or if the camera was here, because I'm quite sure this would be, you know, very interesting. This discussion would be very interesting to people in Iran who are very frustrated by the idea that they're depicted in a way that makes them look like such, like the, the previous questioner, uh, you know, that this is, this is serious stuff to demean and smear people on that level and just say, well, you're basically, it's a murderous country in it. And it, it does, that type of discussion does say, sure, they should be invaded. Sure, they should be uh, taken, taken out. Um, am I addressing your question sufficiently? Uh, no, I was wondering if there's any solar wind. Yeah, I, and I'm, I'm saying I just, I'm just not in, in a position to give a, a knowledgeable answer on that. But, you know, we, there is criticism of nuclear energy, and I did hear it from a, uh, an Iranian person to whom I talked. Hi, Tony. Hi. Bev Mundell-Atherstone. First, I want to make a little announcement. I'm sure it was made, but just so that everyone knows that we have a representative outside from CKXU, the university radio station, and they're very close to their $20,000 goal. They've got $16,000 now, and they want to make 20000 And if we want to continue to support um, this public broadcasting... Anyway, so that was one thing. And then I want to thank you, Tony. You know, it it is provocative, and that's one of the things that SACPA is supposed to do, is provide speakers that will be provocative, make us think, make us understand that um, everything that we think we know, we don't know. You know, we only know some of what what we think we know. Henning and I lived in Pakistan, and so we can support some of the things that you said about ISI in Pakistan and the Mujahideen. We know that that's true. And there are many things, unless you live outside of Canada, you will not even imagine that, that they are true. So I just want to thank you for being the provocative speaker and for all of your work on history and uh, trying to expose things and make us think outside the box. Because if we constantly just go with what our government says is the truth, we will just be deluded sheep. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks, Bev. Um, Hi, my name is uh, Don Ryan. 
my question is, um, you alluded earlier in your uh, talk about um, um, what hope can you give us uh, that there might be an improvement for uh, conflict resolution internationally? Uh, you know, we, we live in an era of uh, the rules have changed. I mean, there really are no rules. Vladimir Putin in 2014 in Valdai, you know, gave a, a speech where he spoke quite clearly about the fact that, uh, you know, the, the, the era of the Cold War, there was a certain regime in place. There was a certain uh, system uh, of interactions. Uh, but, you know, since, uh, since the Cold War, and then there was a period where it seemed that uh, the United States would sort of run everything, and uh, that was around the time of, 20, uh, of 2001, and uh, that was the spirit of the project for the New American Century, uh, essentially Bush's future war cabinet, uh, came together uh, prior to the election and uh, came up with a policy and uh, a document called Strengthening America's Defenses uh, ended with the observation that if we're going to have this unipolar control of the world, which the USA should rise and do that. Of course, Henry Luce, the founder of Time Life, had come up with the phrase the American century in 1941, we should go into World War II, and after World War II, we're going to rule the world, and we should do that. So the authors of the project for the new American century said, we, we, we should do that, we should build up our various instruments to do that, but if we're going to do that, it will be impossible unless there is some catalyzing event, like a new Pearl Harbor. And uh, after... Uh, 9-11 happened, David Frum describes, you know, writing the speech for George W. Bush where he came up with the axis of evil. And he looks at the speech of Roosevelt given uh, after Pearl Harbor. And, uh, you know, it's, it's very interesting, this obsession with Pearl Harbor. And certainly 9-11, you know, sort of changes everything and sort of legitimizes this uh, power grab, but in fact, you know, it's too expensive. The United States has been going bankrupt. It, it, we're in a multipolar world, and Russia is powerful, and China is, you know, rising and powerful, and India is powerful, and the European Union, well, it's big, you know, sometimes it's doing well, sometimes it isn't. Is it an adjunct of U.S. power? We're in a multipolar world, and it's unpredictable. There's no precedent, and it's kind of a, 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 a jungle type of environment where it's just, you just do it. You just do the outrageous things. Cut off the head, whatever it is. Uh, you know, use the weaponry. How much nuclear weaponry is being used covertly by new types of nuclear technology that we've never been told about? Possibly even on 9-11. So, you know, the, these... Uh, questions of what is there hope well there's no system right now and there's no nothing in sight these nuclear negotiations uh with uh, the government of iran do embody some kind of trust some kind of confidence that we can talk about things that maybe we can come up with negotiations and there's not many examples like that around 
to focus in on. So that makes this particular negotiation pretty important. And so, you know, we need to put some pressure on our representatives in the international community to say, let's have uh, some kind of respect for a rules-based system in the international arena. And that would be hope, as slim as it might seem. Thank you.